Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Don't forget, in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Label Podcast. This is Alice, not a teenage boy pretending to be Alice, because my voice keeps breaking. Uh, I have been poorly and uh, have had no voice for like two weeks. I'm slightly concerned this is just how I sound now. Uh, But I'm here with Lucy, who sounds normal. Hello. I did say, uh, just before we recorded, Alice sounds quite, like, seductive. I sound like Alison Hammond's long-lost cousin. (laughs) All right, dear Papa, how are you? Uh, So, you know, it it equals itself out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know how seductive I'll sound when I have a coughing fit, but... It's not going to be me doing most of the talking in this episode, thankfully, for you guys. So hopefully you won't be too uh, put off by what I sound like and you can just listen to uh, Lucy's thick Birmingham (laughs) slur instead. We're doing the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Bob. (laughs) That was brilliant. Um, We are. That's what we're doing. We're doing a fabled. Uh, Yeah, Lucy, do you want to tell us? about what's happening yes now first of all before i even say anything i will tell you that this story is extremely depressing and uh victor hugo um is also a bit i get in the sense he's a bit of a miserable git or was um so strap yourselves in because this might get very very depressing very quickly (laughs) oh good i've tried to make this as cheerful as possible We'll give it a go. Um, so, yes, we are talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, which was a book written by Victor Hugo. Um, this was also a Disney film in 1996. Um, Gosh, is that when it was? Yes, it is. Uh, and when... makes me feel really old. Sorry about that. Again, see, <laughs> depressing. Right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so... And in order to cheer myself up about this story, I did think to myself, oh, maybe I'll watch a Disney film, you know, because I am a child. Uh, uh, And the Disney film does not end like the book. So we are going by the book version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay, so this book was written in 1829 and is set in Paris at the time of uh, rule of Louis XI. Okay. I didn't realise how many Louis there were. There was quite a few Louis. Sixteen, I think. Yes, that's all. Awesome. <laughs> oh, they 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 ran out and they, they just the French royal family just couldn't bother to think of other names. So they yeah. just went ah Louis. We'll call Christmas that one Louis. must have been so confusing. <laughs> Which Louis is this? Yeah. Um, so Hugo wrote this book. Uh, we're talking about the Hunchback of Notre Dame to publicise the importance of pre- pre- preserving architecture and pre- promoting republicanism over royalists. From what okay. I can gather, from what okay. I can gather, 
Um, he does like to go off on a, ta- on a tangent about architecture an awful lot. Um, have I been to Notre Dame? Because it's Notre Dame the one that caught fire a few years ago. Yes. Yeah. I th- I think I've been. Um, I think we went probably... God, I think I was probably 19 or something when we went to Paris. It was a very long time ago. And I'm pretty sure I've been. And it is... It's a bit... I mean, it's impressive, but there's also kind of a bit of a feel of like St. Paul's about it, where it's like, this is impressive, but this is also like a people make a big deal of it because it's a tourist thing. And when you're there, you might like, I think I expected it's very gothic, obviously. I think I expected, um, I don't know, it to be prettier. Mm. And it was all just a bit big grey stone and. You're like, where, where is the hunchback? Where is he? Is he here? I mean, no, that's not what I was wondering. Is he in? But... <laughs> I mean, I did when I went. I was like, is he here? Where, where I think... It... <laughs> I also remember it being went, just... He's not real. I was like, yeah. oh. I, it's also, I also remember it being lit by candlelight. And so I probably didn't get a great... Yeah. Like, it didn't have a great impact on me. It doesn't also, really help like... when you've got a visual impairment, does it? <laughs> like, no. You know what I mean? You, you weren't expecting it to be the same hunchback, were you? Because, like, super, super elderly hunchback when you went to visit Notre you know, Dame. Well, we know that I say stupid things just as they come into my head. Like, there's no filter. My brain doesn't go, hang on a minute, Lucy, think about this. This was written in, like, the 1800s, and you're going, where's the hunchback? Is he in? they just they just, like, they've just got a queue of them waiting. Every time one of them drops dead, they're like, right, next. Where is he? Bring him in. Quasimodo the fourth. They took their inspiration from the, uh, the <laughs> French kings. <laughs> exactly. So yes, it's, so it's safe to say that the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the original story, but, uh, differs very differently to the Disney film. In fact, the, Disney, the only thing about this that's similar in the Disney film is the name. <laughs> uh, and it's I, I'm not surprised this is quite a surprising story you don't really want to be telling this to your kids um, so there are four characters that I'm going to be focusing on for my fabled uh, there are many others but if I was to talk about them I'd be here forever and <laughs> nobody wants that <laughs> um, I would think by this point I was losing the will to live because he'd been waffling on about architecture for at least 25 minutes um so you've got uh, Clyde Frollo, Archdeacon, Quasimodo's adopted father. Uh, everybody believes he is a, uh, it's a bit weird because he dabbles in alchemy and believes he's a sorcerer. Got... <laughs> to be fair, I'd th- if, if somebody was like, hey, you know what my hobbies are, I'd be like, I'm sure you're a very nice man, but I'm going to go and stand over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to move away from you. He's also not a very nice man, so it's probably a good idea that you move away from him. (laughs) Uh, You've got Phoebus, Captain of the King's Archers, and he is the character, really, that brings everybody together in the first place. Uh, You've got Esmeralda. He's very pretty. People, like, he bangs on about how pretty Esmeralda is all the time through the book, and you're like, all right, mate. They do that. (laughs) You've imagined this woman, and now you're obsessed with her. Yeah. Just chill out a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> and then you've got Quasimodo, who is described as, take a deep breath because this is a long list, partially or semi-formed, disfigured with a wart over one eye, uh, a deformed face, one leg longer than the other, and a hunchback. 
I've okay. also heard reports that he's got a hairy back. I don't know whether that is classed as a disability, <laughs> but they were making a big deal about his hairy back. I was right. like, fine, okay. Um, he's also deaf from the bell ringing because he's been ringing bells yeah. all the time. Uh, and because he's a bit weird looking and can't hear anything, he's shunned by society and seen as an outcast. I certainly know from the Disney movie that there is quite a strong implication that he's also got some kind of like learning disability yes. or yeah. cognitive difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that is actually something that like the book is like, yes, this is this is what or or if that Disney were just like, well, he's disabled, so he must be stupid. I think I think <laughs> I think that that the latter is the case. Yeah, I think in the book he's 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 so portrayed as a bit of a loner because obviously he's he's sort of an outcast from society and he sort of makes friends with the gargoyles even though the gargoyles in the book can't talk back to him in the disney version they're cartoon characters and are, are having a chat with him yeah. but he sort of like talks to the gargoyles because they're the, his only company really yeah um so the archdeacon basically lives a, a life that is not a very nice one so persecution of innocent people murder and state crimes are a way of life for frollo as he grows older and becomes more aware of his immortal soul so suddenly like reaches 65 and he's like oh shit it's an archdeacon like pretty important in the church as well you sort of feel like you'd perhaps have spotted the whole like immortal soul you should probably be a decent person yeah, thing you would think when you're like early doors yeah yeah i devote my life to the church let me just murder this yeah. man over here that kind of thing um so because he's aware of his immortal soul um he uh, quasimodo was going to be abandoned on the steps of notre dame and he agrees to take in this deformed baby thinking that it will be like um cleansing of his soul yeah like, like retribution retribution and sort of thing is that the word i mean I, I, that sounds right <laughs> <laughs> sounds right let's go with it um so yeah so he, he he agrees to take on this physically deformed baby um which is what they described it as you know like it's like this horrible looking baby how, you know how how on earth could anybody love something that ugly <clears throat> so quasimodo grows up uh never seeing anyone other than his father he is told by his father that he is a monster and that if anyone else saw him people would reject him reject him and destroy him um nice. if anyone else saw him with so and he he the uh frollo actually makes several attempts unsuccessful attempts to end his suffering um and right quasimodo's suffering yes you mean yeah nice yeah that's yeah. kind of him i'm really really glad that his dad was there for him you know yeah to, to support and understand his right to life yeah nice man mm. uh so as i said before quasimodo makes friends with gargoyles and rings bells uh, that chime out over Paris as sort of like his, his sort of like purpose in life is to mm. ring the bells. So that is Quasimodo. Quasimodo first meets Esmeralda, who is known throughout the story as a gypsy. I know that is probably not the right correct terminology, but that's what she is known as throughout the story. At the Feast of... So he meets Esmeralda at the Feast of Fools, an annual festival festival parodying a religious event during the festival so quasimodo basically sneaks out of his tower to go to the feast of fools quasimodo is elected 
Pope of Fools and is subsequently beaten by an angry mob after being put on trial for mistakenly manhandling Esmeralda. So basically, there's like a tussle. Uh, Quasimodo sort of like tries to rescue her from the tussle. Right. Somebody sees Quasimodo manhandling Esmeralda. Assumes because he's disabled that he's the one who's doing the assaulting, not the one who stepped in. Exactly. Depressed yet? (laughs) (laughs) But Esmeralda takes pity on him uh, when he cries for a drink of water. So basically she stops the whole throwing rotten tomatoes at him and gives him his drink of water. Because of this act of kindness, Quasimodo falls in love with the dancer and decides to devote himself to protecting her. So basically, it's unrequited love. Mm-hmm. Um, unbeknownst to Quasimodo, there are two men who vie for Esmeralda's affection. Quasimodo's adopted father, Frollo, um, and womanising Captain Phoebus. Esmeralda only has eyes, however, for Phoebus, so basically, they fancy one another, um, and he heroically rescues her from the brawl. So basically, Quasimodo tries to rescue her. Everybody thinks Quasimodo is is the wrong one and attacking her, um, and Phoebus like pulls up, pulls her up onto his horse and sort of rides off with her, and she's rescued basically. Right. Some real uh, strong naming game going on in this. There is, uh... isn't there? Phoebus. Phoebus try is spe- uh... <laughs> Try spelling that. I must have tried about four times. It's like, is that right? Is that right? Is that that one? I don't know. I'm I'm gonna guess it's PH. It is PH and there's an yeah. O somewhere, you know. But it's it'll be a bit like Phoebe, I imagine, which I struggle with on a semi daily basis. So <laughs> How many Phoebes do you know? <laughs> None. Um... <laughs> Is that why? You're like, I can't spell your name. I'm afraid we can't be friends. I can't spell your name. Uh, So, basically, uh, Esmeralda and Phoebus fancy one another. Phoebus asks Esmeralda to sleep with him one night. She agrees, because obviously she fancies him. Uh, But as she makes her way to, to meet Phoebus in the evening, he is... She is, sorry, followed by Frollo, who is also in love with the gypsy girl. So basically, you can see what's going to happen here, can't you? Yeah. Basically, Frollo's seen what's cracking off and gone, hang on a minute. I can intercept this and stop her. He can't. So enraged, um, enraged by the fact that Esmeralda's going to meet Phoebus. Isn't Frollo, didn't you say he was old? Yes. That doesn't right. stop him. If he's, no, I know, yeah, I know, but it's just, just, he's a gross. It makes gets, it extra gross. Yeah, it gets worse. It gets worse. Oh, good. <laughs> he's not a very sorry. He's not a very nice man. Uh, so yeah, um, Frollo sees this happening in front of him, and enraged, um, uh, Frollo stabs Phoebus and frames Esmeralda for his murder. Oh, that's nice. If yeah. I can't have you, no one can. Exactly. Weird. Uh, about so basically, <clears throat> Esmeralda uh, basically agrees to go along with it to keep the peace. Like, yeah, you can frame me for his murder. I don't care. Um, I think. I think because uh, it's a very complicated story to follow. But I think that's where we are. So she is about to be hanged for her crimes. Right. Inverted commas. And Quasimodo because he's she's outside the um, cathedral. Okay. Quasimo- so she's basically taken back to Notre Dame 
to the yeah, yeah. outside. I, I didn't realise that that was like where they they sort of just had the gibbet set up outside yeah not this like... is what the guys on the podcast on this uh overdue podcast it's called yeah. were saying like why are they hanging people outside of the church that's not... i mean it feels very catholic to me it feels like if if you're not in the church then you're hanging outside so which <laughs> yeah. which which and side of warning. this rope do you want to be on <laughs> exactly literally so um quasimodo can see all this going on and he's very distressed about the fact that Esmeralda is about to be hung. Uh, so he's he's like watching as as she's being uh, like awaiting a fate, and he swings down from the bell tower, um, and cries, uh, "Sanctuary!" Oh yeah, sanctuary, sanctuary. Now, according to I had to just double check this because I'm not sure what what it meant when you said sanctuary, what it actually meant i could remember a little bit about a church but i wasn't quite sure on the rules so according to contemporary english law no one can be forcibly removed from sanctuary of a church not even a criminal to protect her quasimodo gives her this whistle to alert him uh, if if she becomes in any danger um where uh, she uses it when frollo I was just going to say that because, like, you can't be like, hey, come and hang out in the church where the guy who frames you for murder lives. Uh-huh. Yeah. He, but she uses this whistle when Frollo tries to sexually assault her. This guy's really shaping up to be a real, yeah. um, what a real catch, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, Quasimodo... So, but Quasimodo doesn't realise it is Frollo that he's trying to sexually assault Esmeralda he just sees this hooded figure so she right. blows the whistle as if to say like save me save me he like shape like runs to her and uncovers this hooded figure to realize that the man sexually assaulting her friend his friend is actually his stepfather mm. if that's not a lot if that is not a storyline in EastEnders I don't know what is <laughs> <laughs> um so Basically, what I got from this story, from, from the sort of this point is, the story tries to highlight that even though he is ugly in society's eyes, Quasimodo has a beautiful soul, and Frollo, who is an upstanding member of community and should know mm. better, is a wrong one. So, um, he, Quasimodo is horrified about his like, dad being the one who um, has tried to sexually... Understandably, as she would, yeah. yeah. Like... This is yeah, Jeremy Kyle territory. I was going to say, that's the sort of shit you talk to your therapists about on more than one occasion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then, after a while, a mob comes for Esmeralda to try and get her out of the church because they want her to face up to her crimes that she didn't commit, really. Yeah. So the mob comes for Esmeralda, and Quasimodo defends her once again, throwing wooden spikes, molten steel, oh, <laughs> wooden spikes and molten steal over the mob basically it's like this gets like thriller type like <laughs> action hero yeah, yeah, yeah just grabbing anything you can find yeah yeah yeah. killing most of them in his path nice proper, proper action man still yeah talking about here esmeralda escapes briefly as she uh and she rebuffs frollo's advances one more time so even though like all Jesus of this is kicking Christ. off he's like a dog with a bone and won't leave her alone 
I mean, he's a sexual predator with a boner and won't leave her alone. <laughs> and won't leave her alone. Just won't leave her alone. And even, like, I'm writing this down and, and they're there, like, telling me the story. And I'm like, this is making me feel sick, really, mm. to be fair. So there is a sort of, like, other story that's running parallel to this about um, Esmeralda's mother. So mm-hmm. you don't really know much about Esmeralda's mother to start off with. But then you find out that... Esmeralda's mother, who is also a gypsy, um, their words, not mine, um, has been locked in a prison cell for all these years and has has been wearing, like, a baby shoe from Esmeralda's foot around her neck the whole time. Okay. And, and she's, she's released from prison during this whole action sequence. I don't quite know what happened there, but she's, like, released from prison and her sister's released from prison as well. I don't I, see. I well, thought I you. I thought you were going to say it turns out that Esmeralda's mother had like had this baby before she'd had Esmeralda, and like and they were brother she, and sister. He, he was all. He had all these disabilities, and she didn't think she could care for him, so she'd left him on the church steps of Notre Dame. Mm. That's what I thought you were going to say. No, well, I, I'm not quite sure what happened there. If somebody can decipher that bit of the story for me, because by this point I was like. How many times are you going to mention architecture again? Just tell me again what what the cathedral looked like. That would be really helpful because I don't think I've got a full picture. So, um... <laughs> the quarter of an inch in the bottom left-hand corner you haven't described yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's, what shade was the stone again? <laughs> um, so, yeah, Frollo demands that, obviously, Esmeralda is hanged because he's rebuff she's rebuffed his advances once again because he's basically got his arse in his hands so he goes well i'm gonna get you you yeah he's she's still relying on the like you killed a man yes um so she he she is forcibly removed from the church and uh quasimodo witnesses esmeralda being hung outside of the church upon observing this obviously he's devastated because he's his friend's dead and his dad tried to sexually assault that, that i see i i know you said it was a depressing ending but i thought that like she'd be all right like no. i didn't think i thought quasimodo probably wouldn't be but i thought she'd be all right you're getting mixed up with the disney film because <laughs> she's fine in the disney film absolutely yeah. fine um and i often find disney films quite like traumatic for, for, for saying they're for um, children I mean, like Bambi and yep. the Lion King. Yeah. Like, there's, there, I'm sure, um, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. A friend of mine did their dissertation on um, racism in Disney films. Mm. And um, as they were doing their research, I can remember them talking about how it's a real trope in Disney films that of children being orphaned or losing a parent. And yeah. it's a, it, they do it because it is the most traumatic thing that can happen to a child. Totally. And so it's a kind of any uh, adventure or growth or anything that comes from that is so much made sort of almost more magical because of the mm. trauma they've experienced before. Yeah, like they, they, it's like a hero complex, isn't it? Like look at what they've managed to achieve, even yeah. though their mother and father were brutally murdered or something. And you see, I mean, I know that. Uh, Jason Manford won't let his kids watch Disney films because he says it's 
it's too traumatic. He says, I, I, I don't want my kids to watch anything that traumatic. Well, it's funny as you were talking about when you were talking about the, the Disney Hunchback version, um, you know, and you were sort of saying, what what a book to choose to make a movie yeah. out of. Yeah. It made me think it the the Lion King is Hamlet. Yes. It's that's what the, it's, yes, the, it is, it's Hamlet it? but for lions. Yeah. Um and Hamlet's like the guy the 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 uncle murders the father, mm. marries the mother, Hamlet's love interest loses her mind and commits suicide. It's crazy. Like, it's a fucking dark story. Mm. And you know, they just kind of Hakuna Matata and it and it's alright. Yeah, there's a singing warthog, it's fine. <laughs> um and also you only have to look at the original story of like the little mermaid. Yeah, of course. Horrific. Yeah, walk it what was it, walking on knives? Knives, yeah. And when she like tried to speak like it would hurt her throat and all yeah. sorts of stuff. And then I she know died them and was feels. <laughs> She died and then was returned to the sea. Yeah. As seawater. Um, anyway, so in the last part of the story, so obviously Quasimodo has watched her friend be hung to death. She's obviously de de distraught by this, and Quasimodo, in his rage, pushes the archdeacon from a height, from the height of the bell tower Oof. of the cathedral to his death. I mean, couldn't have happened to a nice person. No. I was like, yeah! <laughs> I was like, yes! Thank God. Um, so Quasimodo then vanishes and is never seen again. Oh. A deformed skeleton is found many years in, many years later, embracing another, implying that Quasimodo had sought Esmeralda among the decaying corpses oh. and had laid down to die whilst holding her. As the guards attempt to pull the skeletons apart, his skeleton crumbles to dust. Oh. Yeah. That's that's fucking horrible, isn't it? Just what kind of man writes a story like that? I don't un I don't understand. I mean, it it feels in a lot of ways it's that kind of there is something very Victorian about it, um, and that 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 kind of love story, um, a love story that it makes me think of um, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, yes, which I read once and thought was incredible, but will never ever ever read again because. It, it just made me want to crawl in a hole and die because it was exactly, so depressing. Yeah, that is exactly how I felt. When I said to you, I finished my fable prep, it was just basically, I finished my fable prep, that was it. There was no other discussion, like, it's done. Can we get this? I don't ever want to look at this again. Can we Can we get this over and done with as soon as possible, please? Yeah, um, yeah it's not a very nice story. I mean, that explains why we're 20-odd minutes in and we've yeah. already talked about the book completely. <laughs> I'm going to talk about, though, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and his disability, so we can perhaps pick apart okay. that for the last half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> pad it out, pad it out, yeah, be fine. Yeah, pad it no out, one pad it out. It's all right, it's all right. And I might sing a song at the end. I don't know. Oh, exciting. <laughs> no, I might not as well. <laughs> uh, the, novel, the novel has been criticised for its portrayal of disability and its use of ableist language, but you have to remember that this was well, this was written... When was this written? You said eighteen twenty nine. Yeah, so he was he was born in eighteen o two, and this was written in eighteen thirty one. Okay. So you know, um, you have to kind of give it some sort of like. 
yeah. time period yeah. thing. And disability rights activists have called for the novel to be banned. I don't think we should be doing that because it's like I say, of its time. We might not necessarily agree with the um, portrayal of Quasimodo or of disabled people, but quite frankly, if I'm honest with you, I think Victor Hugo is more concerned about architecture. Apparently, uh, heart, like towards the end of the book, for two chapters, he goes on about how the printing press is the death of like theatre and the arts and stuff. Just yeah. for two chapters, right in the middle of the story. Just... <laughs> Uh, oh, and by the way, while you're here, it's, I mean, it, it smacks of, like, from what you were saying about how it's kind of a an anti-royalist, pro-Republican book. Yeah. He seems like the sort of person who's like, my book has a message. Yeah, I want to make yeah. sure you know what my message is. Do you know what the hidden, yeah, the hidden meaning of this, this is? Yeah. Um, I actually found reading of the, the abuse of the hunchback um, something very hard to stomach. As a disabled person myself, um, it was just horrible. Um, I mean, I think it would be horrible to read about an able-bodied person, you know, being tortured and having stuff thrown at him and the loneliness and the isolation. But I think it sort of, like, hit home harder because, uh, you know, we are disabled people. And back in the Middle Ages, that's what it, you were treated like if you had a disability um, in some circles, especially particularly i think religious circles you know it was seen as you know you must repent for your sin because mm -hmm. then god can rescue you and you'll be all right in the end kind of thing you know someone i went to school with said that to me once what's that said somebody i went to school with once said um that my eye condition was a punishment from god oh because it's something that i must have done yeah and i was like i've had it said to me before yeah and you just think, what? What? <laughs> my my biggest my biggest takeaway from the whole conversation was, um, in very me fashion, I took it quite literally and sort of went. But I've had this eye condition since I was born. So when did I do something wrong? And they were like, "Well, you must have done something wrong in a past life." And I was yeah. like, "You can't believe in reincarnation and God. No, those are two different religions." Yeah, so exactly. Let's um, let's not do this. Yeah. Why don't no, you take I... your opinion somewhere else? Yes, well done, Alice. I <laughs> once had a woman in Tesco when I was very, very little, about sort of like seven or eight, probably eight or nine, um, give me a bag of Maltesers and said, don't worry, God's forgiven you, just yeah. randomly. And you think, like, y you would hope that not everybody who is religious feels like that. And I know I've spoken to people who are religious, who said, like, take no notice of them, that is incredibly offensive and not everybody who believes in God and Jesus and that kind of thing feels like that. But it's very hard to think that when my only real experience with people who are religious is when they come up to you and say, don't worry, God's forgiven you. <laughs> it's like Glenn Hoddle. Do you remember Glenn Hoddle, the England manager? Yeah. He said that disabled people are disabled because they are paying for something they did in a past life and he, and he got he got sacked for that from, uh, from the england manager well he can't <laughs> i mean they can't in all no. go, yeah you've still got your job mate it's fine yeah but yeah that has always stuck with me it's just like oh icky stuff it just i i the thing is is that of the 
people I know, you know, like I have some very good friends who are quite religious, you know, mm -hmm. God is something that's very important to them. And for them, their faith brings them so much peace and yeah. so much comfort and mm -hmm. solace and community and love and joy. And I don't understand how there are people who get that from organized yeah. religion and yeah. there are other people and i think it must just be fundamentally who you are as a person do you think as well maybe that it's what people take from the messages in the bible they get it the well, wrong way around and and i think that's that's exactly it is it's it's that if if you are the sort of person who is who is primed for hate who is looking for ways of hurting people even if it's even if that hurting people is you know, even if you try and dress it up as being nice, like mm -hmm. telling a child God has forgiven you, like if if you're if that's the kind of person you are, then that's what you're going to take from religion. Yes. Absolutely. Whereas I think if the sort of person that you are is a person who wants people to feel accepted and cared for and sees God as, you know, loving, mm -hmm. then that is that's what you're going to get from religion. And that's what you're going to put out into the world as part yeah. of your religion but also as part of everything else that you do and who you are that it's a bit like that roll dog quote isn't it that if you think lovely thoughts they will come out on your face and beam like sunlight onto everybody else it's that whole kind of you know if you if you have if you have that mentality of this is a nice comforting thing and i don't see any hate in this message whatsoever mm. then you're going to carry that with you when you interact with other people who may be you know non-believers but if you are like you say prime for hate you're gonna like find things and go well it, it actually means this it's like yeah. people who uh are against homosexuality because of what it says in the bible or whatever or, yeah you yeah. know you get people who are very accepting and you get people who just don't get it at all and think it is a sin of course it isn't a sin but you, you do get people who think oh no that's wrong yeah. <laughs> that's that's wrong and it is it's the same it's the same thing it's like if anybody's different if anybody's you know slightly away from the norm you get the polar opposite view particularly in religion i think of either it's okay you know yeah. i'm fine with it and then you've got oh no i don't like it <laughs> i think and i think that personally my my biggest problem you know i i don't believe in god or mm. of any description i believe in science um that's just <laughs> who i am that's how i've been brought up that's how i have educated myself as much as anything you know I, yeah. I went to church for like two and a half years when i was a teenager it was something i did off my own back i explored for myself i decided it wasn't right for me but for i think my biggest problem generally with religion is the fact that all of the texts and all of what we are told about religion and and what is right and wrong and what god says comes from the writings of very long dead usually Old, men older men yeah yeah and it just i just don't think that those people have that you you can't especially then especially in a a world where we didn't have things like the internet or tv or media where we could be more connected and we could see other lives mm -hmm. that and other perspectives that that they just they wrote what they believed and 
they're telling other people that that's what you should believe and that because it's so it's scripture it's so strict there's yeah there's not a lot of scope for interpretation and flexibility and and you know I'm, I'm sure that there are people listening to this who, who do have faith and they may feel differently they may feel like you know they find different things in the bible or whatever religious text they're reading that that gives them a different perspective but mm. but personally i I mean, it sort of goes, it, it sort of fits into kind of what we we you were saying about, you know, Victor Hugo, like the person who writes the story cannot help but put their opinions and their perspectives is, and their yeah. message in their story. Yes. You think, like, I started off doing my research for this book and I was like, oh, fair enough. It's a very elaborate story about a gypsy and the church. And it'll, oh, it's going to be something that reflects society at the time. But actually, he wrote, when he was writing, the time he was talking about in the book is quite a vast amount of time away from the actual year it was. Do you know right. what I mean? So, so it wasn't like he's set. talking about, oh, like, it's like, this is what it's like now yeah he's talking about what it was like say i don't know it was it's it's set his it's a historical, historical. Yeah. yeah so you're and i'm like well and so when i realized that i was like well he's not talking about society at large is he? he's not talking about societal issues he's made this story up out of his own head and woke up one day and got i've got a good idea for a story this was his first book this was before les, Mis les miserables um which again is another miserable story. Oh, um, I'm sorry, but I won't let you talk trash about Les Mis. <laughs> that musical is fantastic. It, well, the musical is fantastic, but it is quite a miserable. Was, to be fair, story. I haven't haven't read the book, no. um, and don't have a lot of time for the movie. No, but the um, but the uh, the stage production is just is just fantastic I, I but i love a musical so my sister i like a musical too my sister um has done like crewing for like these like youth theater groups who, right and she is in she has be, before been in charge of turning the barricade <laughs> she's, really? she's like the, pre the pressure when you're underneath is like do i go now <laughs> when do i turn <laughs> like, um but yeah so it's not the most joyful story. No, it's not. It's called Les Miserables. <laughs> the Miserables. Um, that I is really, all I'm saying. I really hope when we transcribe this that we spell that L-A-Y Miserables. <laughs> Les Miserables. We, I'll let you do that. I'll let you do the transcript for this. Thanks. Les, <laughs> Les Miserables. Although, Les Miserables. I mean, who's Les? <laughs> Why is he miserable? <laughs> um... So, yeah, so I think he's just a very miserable man. I really do. But, and also, like, it's a, it's a horrible story. He's not talking about, like I say, he's not talking about society at large. He's not pointing out any... He's not being clever by pointing out the issues of what gypsy people face or what disabled I mean, people face or what, the church or... What I would say is that, you know, that that what he's trying to do with his historical novel, which, you know, some people do very well and very cleverly, is reflect contemporary issues, but through a, you know, a with, I'm, I'm not talking about now, but look, like, if you read this, you'll see that actually this is the same. Mm. Um, but I think the thing that, the thing that I always think is really telling with books, 
books is, you know, you look at that story and and as you sort of said, you know, Victor Hugo was tried to, to portray that actually Quasimodo was really downtrodden. He was abused. He was, but actually he was a really beautiful, loyal, genuine person. Mm. But I just feel like you can say, you can give that to a character with one hand, with the narrative, but the way you describe somebody, if you are describing that person as deformed, if you are describing that person as disgusting and all the other words that you used, you're taking all of that away from them in exactly the same breath. Yes, completely, totally. I mean, if somebody called me inhuman or, you know, the, I mean, we... You, I could think of a million words that people use to describe disabled people. I'd be like, excuse me? It's, uh, it's, it's Lucy, you might be deformed, but you've got a beautiful soul. <laughs> yeah. My, my feet might be absolutely disgusting and look like E.T.'s feet, but you are a beautiful person. I'd fucking knock, knock your teeth out. <laughs> what did you say about my feet? <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's the, um, you know, oh... At, at least you're you've got a beautiful soul. Oh, at, at, it, least, at least that's at what least it feels it's like, like, doesn't it? The whole at least you're still smiling. Yeah. At least you're still out. At yeah. least you still come out. Yeah. Or at least you can still use your arms. It's whatever it is. It's a fucking. It's that's what it all just smacks of, and it's yeah. I've I recently wrote the piece of bonus content um about James Bond. Um, and read my first and what will definitely be my only James Bond novel and I, it was exactly I had real similar feelings with that it's and I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that this isn't an 18 like 1800s issue like Fleming was writing his book in the late 50s and yeah. he describes the the love interest in the book he's like she's so resourceful and courageous and all of this but then he talks about her like she's a 12 year old girl like he ref literally refers to her as the girl and it's just how can you on the one hand be talking about how incredible this woman is and and giving her really womanly attributes and talk basically about how much bond wants to bang her but then on the other hand being like oh but she's, she's a girl. helpless girl she's a silly little girl yeah mm. no, and it's know. it's exactly it's exactly the same it's giving someone something with a narrative and taking it away with the words you actually use it's it's the um weirdly has made me think of telethons yeah it's like oh we want to help all these disabled people they've got such sad lives look at them all lonely with covered in dinner it's like <laughs> Lucy's but got we're trying to help them again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that it does give me and also the, the thing that struck me like i'd not seen the, well, I had, I have seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I watched it at Easter. I decided to pick that as the film of choice on Disney Plus at Easter. Why? I don't know, Lucy. Stop it. Um, <laughs> put something else on that's cheery. Put Hercules on. That's better. Um, uh, but also, watching the... So there was a YouTube video that was basically talking about the disability representation within The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, I know most of it, but I just wanted to back up with some statistics and facts and stuff. And there was this there was this woman and she was talking about the disability representation of, of The Hunchback of Notre Dame over clips from the film, basically. And though there was a bit in the film, quite early on in the film, where... <laughs> 
Quasimodo is tied down to this like wooden cog thing. So he's tied down with ropes and stuff. Oh, I can remember it. And I they're like throwing tomatoes and rotten fruit at him. Yeah. And he's like, stop, stop. Cause like, there's like lemons in his eye and all sorts. And I can remember it that gave me the feeling, the same feeling in my stomach that at the time when I was watching it as a kid, I didn't really know what the feeling was, mm. but it was like, I don't, I don't like this. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. And then, it that was compounded by the fact that the woman was talking about the fact that um disabled people are four uh, to ten times more likely to experience abuse neglecting mistreatment compared to non-disabled people and i'm like well that's it isn't it that's what that feeling in my stomach as a disabled child was nine out of ten disabled people uh, have experienced a hate crime yeah Rep reportedly have experienced like have reported experiencing a hate crime according to a um statistic from mencap so i was watching that as a small disabled child not knowing mm -hmm. about hate crime or you know people being horrible because i'm disabled but still feeling that fe that feeling of this is a horrible thing in my stomach it's and 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 what that what that thing does to me is like what does that scene give the movie? What yeah. do and and the way that scene is put together, the way that scene is drawn, what does that give like viewers? To me, that feels like almost a a voyeuristic like hey, let's look at the disabled person getting pelted with rotten vegetables. You could have you could do that scene from Quasimodo's perspective. Mm -hmm. So he's seeing the the vegetables being thrown being at him thrown at and him. that that would be upsetting and horrible in a different way mm -hmm. but it would it would take away that element of sort of um, the, the pleasure of the freak show the pleasure of looking at a disabled person while they're being pelted and tortured yeah. Yeah. that 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 image gives you and i think like you know it's one thing to say like the book exists the book exists right and i don't think we should well then the book is the 200 book. years old exactly so... we don't say we we don't say ban the book but what i do think is there is a conversation here to be had about like they were going to remake the hunchback of notre dame as a live action film don't do that don't do that no there's no need for that and if you're arguably... going to do it then you're the only the you know they've already told that story with like change the story for the disney film the only way that that works as a live action movie is if you change the story completely and that's yeah. not the story you're telling anymore no, exactly. but you're using basically the same characters and setting and there is an argument to say like well if you're going to change the ending of the hunchback of notre dame anyway what the hell are you doing making it into a cartoon in the first place yeah you why know? why you're you not telling... actually telling the story yeah what you're doing is you're saying oh we're making the hunchback of notre dame but we've tweaked it a bit for you know child-friendly audiences and mm. then you're forcing people to go on the internet and read up about the real hunchback of notre dame and oh my god don't do that either because it's depressing mm -hmm. do you know what i mean it's like i there is an uh, there is an argument to say why the hell did you remake it in 1996 it should have been left to 200 not necessarily get rid of the book but don't then rehash it yeah it's really interesting audiences. 
you know, a bit, uh, again, doing the, the, the Bond research, I was reading about how they are, and apparently they've done it with some Roald Dahl books, that mm. they've, they've taken out some of the offensive racist language in particular from mm. those books and, and changed it so that instead of a racist slur, it just says a black person. Yeah. It's that kind of, you know, they say they're doing it so that contempt for contemporary audiences, but I don't know. I don't know whether... But it's like Daisy says about statues and tearing down statues. You don't tear down statues because that's history. What you do is you put a plaque up next to the statue to say, you know, modern times have revealed that Joe Smith was did actually... This. Yeah. Did this. You don't tear down the statue because tearing down the statue doesn't erase what he did from history. Yeah. You're just tearing down the statue to make you, yourself feel better. Yeah. Um, it's and I don't I I don't agree with I don't agree with changing like language in book like original books and stuff. I think if they were going to make an adaptation, say as a movie, then you would be yes. mindful of language and yeah, things, absolutely. But I think if it's the original text, you just leave it as is and say, well, that's of its time. But you and, don't, and, then... and you can do something like put an appendix appendage to it that says, you know since writing since this book was published we understand that terms like deformed are not acceptable no. and that you know the the outcome of this story actually doesn't leave disabled Anybody people hurt. or people with ethnic minorities in a particularly good light you know the the guy that wins at the end of the hunchback is the uh the old white catholic guy like yeah that's not that's well I mean, everybody everybody dies in the end of the book but yeah, yeah. i know what you mean it's like and i don't think make the idea of making a live version of the hunchback of notre dame is not a good one no i don't know whether it's been canned but i think it should be because i don't I, think yeah i don't think it is right to be having actors walking around not because you can guarantee it won't be a, it won't be somebody with a scoliosis no playing a hunchback no. It won't be. It won't be. It'll be like some Hollywood star because they need to get bums on seats because yeah. Disney are struggling at the moment. So you have to sort of wait. Like this is not a good idea. Leave this alone. Nineteen ninety six. Like it was the nineties. You know, we did a lot of stupid questionable. Stuff in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, we'll not hold that against you. But to be honest, like don't do it again. No. Here's, no, here's learn, a new version. From your mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just, but it struck me how seeing that scene again where he was sort of like tied down to that big water cog, like it's it, horrible. And it was the same feeling I got as a kid. Like I knew it was horrible. And I, it was almost like a fear, like not a fear of that was going to happen to me because it wouldn't happen to me. But it's but like when that fear you're a child, of, you don't necessarily understand that, do you? No. And no. so it does, it does make you afraid. Yeah traumatic really if i'm mm. honest i'm not going to be watching that again or talking about it um but even i went to bed like after i'd done my research and i was like what's a horrible man what a horrible man to think up of that story in the first place i thought the um the like skeletons together thing is that's the, I mean, that's fucking dark because yeah. like she didn't want him as a like a lover and the only way that he could have any kind of intimacy with her is after she's dead and he has mm. to 
dig through corpses to fight. It's just and lying with her as she's oh, dying. And just and and like you know, he wasn't dying, so he just laid with her and waited to die. Like that's a fucking horrible ending. Yeah, it's not. Like it's not like he was wounding, wounded and gone, oh, let me lie, lie down here and just wait for my inevitable end. Yeah. He just decided to lie there until he um, died. Yeah. So that he could be with her. Because what else has he got in his life because he's a disabled person? Mm. Oh, God, that... Is it so... too early to start drinking? <laughs> I told you. I... Didn't I tell you? You know how you struggled with the Christmas episode? Like... Our Christmas episode with Chid Dickens, you were like, it was hard going. Yeah. You got me back, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> you were like, go on then, have a go. I mean, I tried the audio book, which was read by Christopher Lee. And I was like, I've got, I've got to try and get on with this. And bless him, Christopher. <laughs> like, <laughs> I tried. Uh, yeah, it was just, and because like all of the other books are like, that I could find, like the audio books I could find, were like unabridged versions, and I'm like, I'm not sitting through the whole thing. Forty hours. Or something, I probably. cannot. Yeah. I cannot pour up with any more talking of buttresses or tower or bell towers. That, to God's... be fair, that's what that's what Dickens is like. Yeah, like, I feel like um, Dickens is probably really good if you're you're reading a physical book because you can skim over all that shit. You yeah. cannot do that with an audio book. It is my biggest kind of issue with an audio book. You move it an inch and you've gone like forty two chapters. I am um, I I listened to the Dickens book on like double speed. So I was just like <laughs> I can't I can't sit here for thirty seven hours listening to like, Dickens <laughs> Dickens has a lot of characters in his books and he just likes to go off on a little tangent and talk about yeah. what they've been up to that day. And it's just like, this is this is not important to the story. And it's not interesting that, you know... Describing miss... the cobbled streets. Yeah. Like, yeah. So there you go. I, re I read the uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame so that you don't have to. Um, <laughs> That's was... exactly what I thought when I was writing the Bond thing. I was like, I need to end this by saying, now, now feel free to never, ever pick up a Bond <laughs> book because I have done that work for you. I am... Um... I did ask, like, on our Facebook group whether anybody had seen the Hunchback of Notre Dame film and or read the book, uh, and nobody replied <laughs> because they've obviously got lives um, <laughs> and aren't interested in uh, Parisian architecture. Uh, but it would be really nice to hear from our listeners if you uh, have got an opinion on this episode about what we've talked about, if you think we've missed anything off or you think that I've missed the point with the book, which is quite possible, um, then let us know and we'll, we can have a bit of discussion. Yeah, that would be really interesting. We're, we're always, yeah, always up for feedback and stuff. So that would be really, yeah. I think be really interesting. The next fable should be a like heart of the fair, please. So I think got, about half got, an hour and we'll be fine. I've got, I've got quite a, I don't know whether, I don't know whether it would, the outcome would be lighthearted, but I know that the film is supposed to be, that I want to do is supposed to be quite lighthearted. So okay. I've got an idea for, for that um, to come. We'll, I have to do the research before I promise anything though. That is something think, I've learned. Do you think we should have a cut off point? of fabled like we're not doing anything before such and such a date because i think certain date periods are like this is going to be depressing it's about disability and therefore the worst thing in the world but i'm going to write a book on it anyway um nah i think uh <laughs> i think that it's i think it's 
interesting to look at how how the way that you know the way disabled people are put, like written and the stories that we tell about them have have changed or maybe hasn't changed over the mm. years and um you know i think i think there's a lot of besides like don't don't restrict our content loose we're no, desperately true. scrabbling for content <laughs> it just means that you just don't just don't read anything earlier than like 1925 for yourself just for your own sanity yeah. okay leave the victorian stuff to me it's fine okay can we have that written down please in fact we have <laughs> in the transcript it's fine I was um, going to say verbal contract. Yeah, verbal contract. Hey, uh, I have to say, I did not make you do this. You, you were the one who were like, hey, I'm going to do said, Hunchback. Nothing yeah, but I did, I did not realise how depressing the story was. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was this bad. I was like, I got halfway through. I was like, oh, my God. I'm only <laughs> halfway through and Phoebus is dead. And But then, apparently, during the po this podcast I was listening to, Phoebus is dead, but then isn't dead. And is womanising, and I'm like, well, is he dead or not? That's 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 very um, Victorian. Like, there's just it's like I do feel like Victorian writers were just so busy doing opium that they forgot who they'd killed off, and that they just kind of went, "I'd be fine. No one will notice." Right. Yeah. Hey, well, he was too busy whinging about the printing press, wasn't he, Victor? <laughs> or oh, Victor was like, "Hang on, uh, he's dead, but let me just tell you about the printing press because I'm not happy about it." <laughs> really? So there we go. If you want to share your opinions on the printing press, you can uh, at us uh, at Labelled Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and you can find transcripts on our website and sources on our website. And anything else, Luce? Uh You can also join the Facebook community where we will be sharing sort of like prompts and things for discussion about this, this and every other episode as well. So come and join us over there. We're a nice gang. And uh, otherwise, we will see you next time for something slightly less depressing, maybe. Yes, I'm going for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Shh, don't wake Tora. Thanks for listening to The Label Podcast. If you like the show, you can rate, review and subscribe. And you can follow us on social media at Labeled Pod. This episode was edited by Adam Hall. Our music was by Maisie Crunden and we'd like to thank the rest of the team involved. <laughs> <laughs>